This is RCT number 13, The Holy Name of Jesus. RCT stands for the Roman Catechism of Trent, page 35 to 38 today. We are in the Creed, Article 2, Part B. God give you his peace, in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler Spirit, Spirit of Truth, who art present everywhere and filling all things, treasure of all good and source of all life, come dwell in us, cleanse us and save us, you who are all good. Amen. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. And please do pardon my hiatus from the RCT series. We had a family emergency, and then I was on silent retreat. So hopefully we should have about two of these a month coming. Thanks for tuning in again. And please go ahead and share this with other friends of yours. They don't really have to catch up, but we're only 13 into this. So it shouldn't be too hard if you want to spread this series to others. Also, if you could give a rating on Apple Podcasts, not that I'm superstitious, but the number 666 is how many ratings we have, and I just don't like those numbers being seen on my uh, Apple Podcast app. So if you do listen to this on Apple, I'd really appreciate a little rating uh, to push the number over that wicked number from Revelation or Book of the Apocalypse. And thank you to all of you who donated to my charity, Peregrino Hermitage Limited, at the end of last year. That is exactly why we can keep this free for everyone rich or poor with no Patreon, no pop-up ads, and no ads on YouTube. And now we enter into the Roman Catechism of Trent to see what it has to say about those two names, Jesus and Christ. I do apologize for the washing machine you might hear in the background. That's the hazards of a modern hermitage condo as you make podcasts. I apologize. I'll try to work on that in the future. Okay, so the Catechism says of the holy name Jesus... Jesus is the proper name of the God-man and signifies Savior, a name given him not accidentally or by the judgment or will of man, but by the counsel and command of God. For the angel announced to Mary his mother, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 31. He afterwards not only commanded Joseph, who is espoused to the virgin, to call the child by that name, but also declared the reason why he should be so called. Joseph, son of David, said the angel, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.20 In the sacred scriptures, we meet with many who were called by this name. So, for example, was called the son of Nave, who succeeded Moses, and by special privilege denied to Moses, conducted into the land of promise, the people whom Moses had delivered from Egypt, and also the son of Josedek, the priest. Me here with some thoughts on typology. Typology is a comparison of Old and New Testament that the RCT just gave us a little bit of. So Joshua that you just heard of there in RCT, Joshua there is a reference to the Old Testament book, obviously, of Joshua, as in Joshua and Caleb, who took the Holy Land from the seven wicked tribes. Now you might know that the church fathers in the New Covenant, just after the New Testament was written, the church fathers describe our life on this earth being similar to that desert of Jordan and Egypt where the Hebrews were, where they wandered for many years, and then where did they enter into? Well, most of Israel, keep in mind, as I've said before, 
looks a lot more like Napa Valley in California, not like the deserts of Egypt. You have certain exceptions like Jericho. But if you go around uh, Jerusalem, it's a very beautiful land. It's truly the promised land. So the church fathers say that just as for the Hebrews, Joshua was chosen to lead those few faithful Jews from the desert of Jordan to Israel, the promised land, so also in this analogy, we know that we Christians are called to go from this desert of this valley of tears, where we are surrounded by pagan nations, into the promised land, but we can only get there by crossing the Jordan, which the church fathers said was analogous to baptism. But today, the point of the catechism is making is just that just as Joshua of the Old Testament was a savior in the sense that he saved the Hebrews from earthly enemies by conquering the promised land, so also Jesus, Jesus, which means savior, he is the new Joshua the new Savior, who by baptism leads us across the Jordan from this desert valley of tears to our true promised land, which is heaven. And always remember that those who do make it to heaven, they get their bodies back. So even though it's primarily spiritual, it's also physical. And this is why we have to remember Jesus is not just a spiritual Savior, but he is the physical Savior of our bodies if we obey him. So Jesus is the same as Joshua, and even Jesse, according to some etymologies. But all of these mean savior or rescuer. Back to the catechism again. It says, but how much more appropriate it is to call by this name our savior, who gave light, liberty, and salvation, not to one people only, but to all men of all ages, to men oppressed not by famine or Egyptian or Babylonian bondage, but sitting in the shadow of death and fettered by the galling chains of sin and of the devil, who purchased for them a right to the inheritance of heaven and reconciled them to God the Father. In those men who were designated by the same name, we see foreshadowed Christ the Lord, by whom the blessings just enumerated were poured out on the human race. All other names which according to prophecy were given by divine appointment to the Son of God are comprised in this one name, Jesus. For while they partially signified the salvation which he was to bestow upon us, this name included the force and meaning of all human salvation. Okay, me again. So you know, in some sense, the Catechism is here telling us that the entirety of the Son of God and all the names that was prophesied in the New Testament and all the beautiful names of the saints of the New Covenant have called Christ, it's really all summed up in that one holy word, Jesus. Now, of course, Christ is a beautiful but generic term meaning the anointed one. But the holy name of Jesus is just as precious, even more probably, than the name Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now, keep in mind that in the Old Testament, no one could say the name Yahweh except the high priest once a year in the Holy of Holies. This was the only time it was permitted, again, once a year, by only one person in Israel to say that name, Yahweh. Saying it for anyone else carried the death penalty. Then why am I saying it on this podcast? Because we now have access to the most holy name of Jesus, which is even more powerful than Yahweh. So by an a fortiori argument, we can sparingly then use Yahweh too. In other words, if I would dare to say the holy name of Jesus with reverence and love, 
it's less serious to say the name Yahweh, which we also must be careful with. But remember, Jesus is Yahweh, because God the Father is Yahweh, and God the Son is Yahweh, and God the Holy Spirit is Yahweh. But God the Son is Jesus, so Jesus is Yahweh. As I said, saying that name, saying that name Yahweh in the Old Testament carried the death penalty, but many sins that carried the death penalty in the Old Testament now carry the weight of mortal sin in the New Testament, hence the name mortal, which means deadly. But this time it kills your soul, not your body. And this, my friends, is why St. Thomas Aquinas holds that the misuse of the holy name of Jesus with full knowledge and consent is a mortal sin. It's a mortal sin to misuse that name. This is why I don't even, I don't own a TV and I never have, but if I'm watching a movie on my iPad, I will go to the Focus on the Family website called Plugged In, and it, you can scroll down to language, and it'll tell you if the holy name of Jesus is misused at all. And I really suggest you just don't watch any movies that misuse the name of Jesus. Right now I am reading the life of St. Gemma Galgani as told by her spiritual director, St. Gemma Galgani, she would be wrecked for hours if she heard the holy name of Jesus misused. That's because she was so sensitive. Sensitive doesn't mean weak. Sensitive means strong in the Lord. So if we were strong in the Lord and sensitive to the things of God, we too, like St. Gemma, would be wrecked if we heard the holy name of Jesus misused. You know, when I'm out and about, I will not correct cuss words, but I have it as a personal resolution to correct anyone who misuses that word. I try not to be a jerk about it, but I, I feel I have to do more than just cross myself or bow my head or something. Um, these people need a loving correction. So I'll often say, you know, that's my savior and yours. If I'm a little weaker at the time, I might say, praise, praise be his glory. But if I'm strong in the moment, strong in the Lord, weak in myself, I will say, that is my savior and yours. So keep this in mind, when you use well the name of Jesus, you attract angels and you repel demons. But when you misuse the name of Jesus, you attract demons and repel angels. Let me say that again. When you, when you use well the name of Jesus, you attract angels and repel demons. When you misuse the name of Jesus, you attract demons and repel angels. Now some charismatic Catholics think that the more times you say Jesus in a sermon, the better. They're not totally wrong, but I don't follow that practice of thinking the more times the better on the holy name, at least not in a sermon. Why not? Well, it's the same reason why I don't say it's best to receive Holy Communion as many times in a day as possible. I think it's better to be low in quantity and high in quality, both in receiving communion and saying the holy name. By the way, the new rules in the church is apparently, if you're in sanctifying grace, you as a layperson can receive Holy Communion twice in a day. But in tradition, that was unheard of, especially for lay people. Uh, if, you were a, if you were a lay person in sanctifying grace before Vatican II, the absolute maximum to receive Holy Communion would be once. That's really all that was encouraged for priests, too. This whole binating thing, two, three, four, five masses on a Sunday for priests, is a, is a bad idea because familiarity can breed contempt even with the most holy of things. Okay, but back to this topic of how often we use the holy name of Jesus. 
Now, if you notice on my podcasts, when I refer to him, I usually use the word Christ because of a holy fear I have of the holy name of Jesus. Now, of course, it's fine to use either one, but if you go to the Latin Mass or you've ever prayed the rosary with your grandparents, if they're still Catholic, you'll notice they will always bow their heads in reverence to the holy name of Jesus and Mary, as I just did. And so if we were to throw those words around willy-nilly, you'd have to be bowing your heads a dozen times in every one of my podcasts. This time I think it's okay because this one is on the holy name of Jesus, but if you rewind, you can see that I've, I've bowed my head every time too. So I do admit that the name of Jesus is, of course, the most beautiful and most powerful and most holy name in the English language, and its translation into any language is the most beautiful and powerful and most holy name. And for that reason, I do encourage you to say the name of Jesus as much as possible in prayer, whether mental prayer or vocal prayer, all day long, as long as you say it with love. But if we throw it around recklessly, especially in such a blasphemous culture as we have now, it's bound to be misused by the enemies of Christ. We should not throw pearls to swine. And that's where we have to be careful in sermons and even in our normal pious conversations on the streets, how often we use that most holy name. Now let's talk about the frequent use of the holy name in a way that is very salvific, much more so than just excessively using it in a sermon, for example. And the example I want to give you is this, that Eastern Catholic monks and Eastern Orthodox monks, they quietly whisper the Jesus prayer all day. What is the Jesus prayer? Probably half of you know the answer to this. The Jesus prayer goes like this. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yes, Eastern Catholic monks and Eastern Orthodox monks, they whisper that to God, but labializing it with their lips and whispering it, they say that to God, not dozens, not hundreds, but thousands of times a day. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Again, that is called the Jesus Prayer, and I highly encourage you to pray it as much as you like. Now, some people, if you get into this, if you go way down the rabbit hole on the Jesus Prayer, you'll see that there's very specific rules to breathing in and out for the different two parts of that sentence. And some people say, if you don't do it the right way, you're going to get hurt. I don't know if they mean that uh, physically or spiritually. That sounds a little new agey to me to get super worried about that. But on the other hand, I'm not an expert on the Jesus prayer, and there's probably a right, a right way to pray it all day. So go ask an Eastern Catholic priest for a little guidance. And if he's too snotty or meticulous on the breathing part, I might go ask someone else who, who truly has respect for the holy name, but doesn't get too involved in advanced breathing exercises. But I'm not an Eastern Catholic, so I do admit there is a probably a right way to pray the Jesus prayer in a wrong, pray, wrong way. So go ahead and get some instruction. Again, the prayer is, Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Eastern saints have probably prayed that prayer all the way back to apostolic times. And remember, by Eastern saints, I mean that before the year 1054, every Catholic saint was Orthodox and every Orthodox saint was Catholic. So we have no reason to fear any of the Eastern fathers before 1054 even if their patriarchate was Alexandria or Antioch or Jerusalem. Now, granted, they all saw Rome as having pride of place, even if for some it was just first among equals. 
Uh, And many of those great Eastern saints, they prayed that Jesus prayer all day long. So please do use the holy name of Jesus as much as possible. But just like that prayer, let it be whispered in silent adoration, not a showy or sloppy use in sermons of just how many times you can say it, that holy name, which yes, is so wonderful as honey is on the lips, as it says in scripture, but precisely because of that, we want to have such awe and reverence for that name. And now back to the catechism as it shifts from the holy name of Jesus to the name Christ. It says, to the name Jesus is added that of Christ, which signifies the anointed. This name is expressive of honor and office and is not peculiar to one thing only, but common to many. For in the old law, priests and kings whom God, on account of the dignity of their office, commanded to be anointed were called Christs. For priests commend the people to God by unceasing prayer, offer sacrifice to him, and turn away his wrath from mankind. Kings are entrusted with the government of the people, and to them principally belong the authority of the law, the protection of innocence, and the punishment of guilt. As, therefore, both these functions seem to represent the majesty of God on earth, those who were appointed to the royal or sacerdotal office were anointed with oil. Furthermore, since prophets, as the interpreters interpreters and ambassadors of the immortal God, have unfolded to us the secrets of heaven, and by salutary precepts and the prediction of future events have exhorted to amendment of life, it was customary to anoint them also. When Jesus Christ, our Savior, came into the world, he assumed these three characters of prophet, priest, and king, and was therefore called Christ, having been anointed for the discharge of these functions, not by mortal hand or with earthly ointment, but by the power of his heavenly Father and with a spiritual oil. For the plenitude of the Holy Spirit and a more copious effusion of all gifts than any other created being is capable of receiving were poured into his soul. Let's just pause here real quick. Of course, there's a weird poll. This is me again, Father David Nix. There was a poll we saw on Twitter, and it said, how many persons was in Jesus Christ? And it was amazing. Something like 78% of Catholics got it wrong. The answer is this. Jesus Christ is only a divine person. He's not a human person. Because the center of your responsibility can only be one. You can't have a dual center of your responsibility. The center of Christ's responsibility is divine. Archbishop Fulton Sheen explained this really well. He said, uh, the personhood is the who and the nature is the what. So in Christ, there's only one person, because in all of us, there's only one person. That is the eternal word, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is a divine person. But, and here's where the what comes. So the who of Jesus is a divine person. How about the what? The what is this. He has a divine nature and a human nature. So notice we're not denying that the nature of Jesus is 100% divine, because it's a what, and his nature is 100% human. That's the what. But the who, the center of his responsibility, is only one that is a divine person. But because in Christ's humanity he has both a created human body and a created human soul, that is why we could just hear this line from the Catechism that spoke of this plenitude of the Holy Spirit and a more copious effusion of all gifts than any other created being is capable of receiving, this was poured into his soul. 
And then back to the Catechism, which continues, This the prophet clearly indicates when he addresses the Redeemer in these words, Thou hast loved justice and hated iniquity. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Psalm 44.8 The same is also more explicitly declared by the prophet Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me. He hath sent me to preach to the meek. Isaiah 61.1 Jesus Christ, therefore, was the great prophet and teacher, from whom we have learned the will of God, and by whom the world has been taught the knowledge of the Heavenly Father. The name prophet belongs to him preeminently, because all others who were dignified with that name were his disciples, sent principally to announce the coming of that prophet who is to save all men. Christ was also a priest, not indeed of the same order as were the priests of the tribe of Levi in the old law, but of that of which the prophet David sang, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 109.4. This subject the Apostle fully and accurately develops in his epistle to the Hebrews. Christ not only is God, but also is man and partaker of our nature, we acknowledge to be a king. Of him the angel testified, He shall reign in the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Luke 1, 32-33 The kingdom of Christ is spiritual and eternal, begun on earth but perfected in heaven. He discharges, by his admirable providence, the duties of king toward his church, governing and protecting her against the assaults and snares of her enemies, legislating for her and imparting to her not only holiness and righteousness, but also the power and strength to persevere. But although the good and the bad are found within the limits of this kingdom, and thus all men, by right, belong to it, yet those who in conformity with his commands lead unsullied and innocent lives experience beyond all others the sovereign goodness and beneficence of our king. Although descended from the most illustrious race of kings, he obtained this kingdom not by hereditary or other human right, but because God bestowed on him as man all the power, dignity, and majesty of which human nature is capable. To him, therefore, God delivered the government of the whole world, and to this his sovereignty, which has already commenced all things shall be made fully and entirely subject on the day of judgment. So here's the key, folks. Christ is king whether you recognize him or not. As the old saying goes, Christ is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. So this isn't my opinion. It is reality that Christ is priest, prophet, king, God, and savior of the whole world. And then there's just two categories, those who adore him as savior and accept this, and those who, once they get to hell, will recognize he was the only savior of the world. No other false religion can save you. Yes, Christ is king of heaven and earth, whether you recognize that fact or not. And this is why even the demons can't help but fall down in an almost confused adoration or at least forced reverence, even in hell, even in hell, at the holy name of Jesus. How do we know this? St. Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, For which cause... God also hath exalted him, and hath given him a name which is above all names, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the glory of God the Father. Did you hear that? Even under the earth. In Latin, infernorum. Remember, St. James writes that even the demons believe, yet shudder. 
In other words, even the demons in hell know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. They know it, but they hate it. And we will all see at the end of time that even those who mock the holy name of Jesus and blaspheme the saints and try to destroy the Catholic Church, especially from within, even their knees will inadvertently buckle at the holy name of Jesus that we bow our heads to now. But at the end of time and even now we know that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those that are in heaven on earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the glory of God the Father. Please say an hour, Father, for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et Fidi, et Spiritus Santi, descendet super vos, et maniat semper. Amen.